If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 44. As we look to God's Word, let's look to Him now in prayer once again. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we need Your help. Your Word is before us. And apart from Your Spirit giving us understanding of Your Word, it remains just words on a page. But Father, we know Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We know Your Word is sharper than any double-edged sword. We know that Your Word is useful and practical for so many things. So Father, help us today as we spend time in Your Word to learn and grow what we are to believe about You and also what duty You ask of Your people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What situations do you all find yourselves in when you ask for help? Um, you know, there's some people I know that um, ask for help immediately and they don't even try. But there are other people, I'm sure we all know them, we may have been that kind of person, that, that wait and wait and wait and just for some reason are afraid to ask for help. And we've all seen those, um, maybe, uh, some of us have seen shows when in particular a husband and wife maybe are, are lost and one person is, is, is ready to ask for help and the other person is not ready to ask for help. But ask yourself, when do I ask for help? How long does it take for me to ask for help? At what point... Do you cry out with the one word prayer? Help. Look with me at the end of Psalm 44. Uh, just look at these verses 23 through 26. And you see punctuation like exclamation points and, and question marks. And at the very last verse, rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast Love. This psalm, I think, rightly has, a, has an inscription, uh, come to our help. It's, we're going to see God's people call on him for help. Psalm 44, we'll see praise and protest and petition. Um, the most words, the central theme is one of lament and complaint. Now, rather than personal lament that we saw in Psalms 42 and 43 and other Psalms before that, this is a communal lament that's built around some sort of national defeat for the people of Israel. It'll start off with praise, we'll be in lament, a protest for a long time in this Psalm, and then there's a prayer of petition at the end. So, the Psalms, as we've been seeing this summer and the summer before that and the summer before that, are a precious treasure for the church. And, and one aspect of the riches of the, church, of the Psalms, as we've been seeing, is, as Calvin says, they are anatomy for all the parts of the soul. Calvin writes this, the Holy Spirit here, that is in the Psalms, has drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, 
all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. See, Calvin read the Psalms and recognized them for what they were. It was a, a mirror to show us and it helped us express those emotions of grief and sorrow. In that short article, Don't Sanitize the Psalms, we heard this. The psalmist reminds us that the language of lament is permitted in Scripture, and we will see that again today. In the article, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? We hear this. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. And in the book, The God I Don't Understand, Christopher Wright says this, it is precisely those who have the closest relationship with God who feel most at liberty to pour out their pain in protest to God without fear of reproach. Lament is not only allowed in the Bible, it is modeled in abundance. And today I believe we'll see that Psalm 44 will, will serve as yet another encouragement to lament as well as a model for lament. But we're not going to begin in Psalm 44 right away. We're actually going to begin in Romans 8. And so if you would keep one hand in Psalm 44 and turn with me over to Romans 8. Romans 8. Now what's going on in Romans 8? I've been watching a series from Ligonier over the past few weeks uh, on Romans 8. Derek Thomas calls it the greatest chapter in the Bible. He believes it's the greatest chapter, and I think many of us would agree that it is one of the best chapters. Um, you'll notice in verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44:22. Let me begin reading Romans 8, beginning in 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. By quoting this verse from Psalm 44, Paul is making it clear that this is the common experience of God's children. This is the experience of Christians. We suffer with God's Son so that we can be glorified with Him. That's pretty much a quote of 
verse 17 of Romans 8. And later on, Paul writes in Romans 15 that the reason that things were written in the former days was to encourage us, to help us endure. And I believe as we spend a few minutes now in Psalm 44, we will be encouraged and we will be strengthened to endure. Well, let's move um, with j- to just some uh, comments uh, briefly, some general comments about Psalm 44. This, we don't have a whole lot of detail as to when this was composed. It was during some time when Israel was suffering uh, military defe- uh, defeats. It, it, it just, the actual details, we don't know. But you know what? That makes it all the more applicable to us in every time and every place, to God's people in the 1100s, to God's people today, and for God's people in the days to come. As we read through and comment on Psalm 44, I want you to notice uh, plural and singular pronouns. Every now and then a singular pronoun um, uh, is there, and what most commentators and scholars think is this is sort of, uh, because it's used in worship, there's a, the king or maybe just a, a military leader who's, who's speaking as a representative for the people and the people respond. And it's sort of a, a back and forth um, in a time of worship, in a time of praise and lament and prayer. Now we're going to open up and explore Psalm 44 by using its own divisions based on time as well as action. The time is past, present, and future, and the action is praise and protest and petition. Let's look at the first eight verses, uh, past victories through faith in God, remembering God's past deliverances. Uh, Before I read uh, the first three verses, I want us to just think about the importance of history. Uh, We'll see God's people looking back and recalling God's past acts of deliverance. It's a a hymn of praise to God. Um, It's the importance, we'll see, of knowing history, of passing history down, biblical history and church history. And as you know, God's people have been um, called to pass on to the next generation, the faith that they have received. So listen to these first three verses. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Here the psalmist is looking at the distant past. The nation of Israel is established in the land. Last week we um, heard about the, the, the tenth plague that was coming where Pharaoh finally was in the position to release God's people. And God cared for his people. He remembered the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered the promise to give them a land. And this is most likely recalling the conquest of the land of Canaan uh, under Joshua. It's the distant past. But then, beginning in verse 4 through verse 8, it's the immediate past. 
It's not only the nation has been established in the land, but the nation is kept secure in the land. Listen to these words. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. They are looking not only to the distant past, but to the immediate past, acknowledging that it is God and not they themselves that has preserved them in the land. And if you look at Deuteronomy 7, you will see where God says, I placed my hand upon you because I love you. You were not more numerous. You were not better. But I love you because I love you. And I'm going to bring you into the land and I'm going to give this to you. If Psalm 44 ended at verse 8, it would be a psalm of praise, of giving thanks to God, boasting not in yourself, but in Him who has protected and provided. But instead, in many cases, of moving from a sad past to a glorious present, as many psalms do, here the words of the psalmist move from a glorious past to a tragic present. I mean, it's moving, I think, in the wrong direction, we would say. Well, let's listen to the psalmist. As we look at verses 9 through 22, this middle portion, this lengthy portion of, of the present, uh, present defeats, as we will see, in spite of faithfulness to God. The present time is puzzling to God's people. Beginning in verse 9, there is a counter movement. Um, kids, whenever you see the word but in Scripture, whenever you see the word yet in Scripture, stop and pay attention and look at what's happening. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. It's a shocking shift. It's a swift change of direction. It's an abrupt change in the music. If you were to if we were to have sung kind of this middle portion, um, we would have had to have found a, a tune that was um, minor key, sorrowful, sad. The music has changed. It's a painful puzzling. It's a complaint about the current situation. Now, as I read verses 9 through 16, you will hear the present crisis described in great detail. It's an extended portrait of defeat. It's a detailed agony of rejection. And we'll see that rejection has fallen not on the rebels among God's people, but it's fallen on the believing remnant of God's people. Disaster, we will see, is one thing, and disgrace is quite another. Join with me beginning in verse 10. And listen how the psalmist addresses God, who, because of his relationship with God, is able to speak to God like this. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. 
You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Is this the same psalm? To go from praise to this kind of protest, to this kind of lament and complaint? God is being told, you've you've abandoned us. You don't go out with our armies. The people around us who hate us, they're getting our spoils. It's it's an initial reference to being like sheep who who are ready for the slaughter, who've been scattered among the nations. And God has, as it were, sold his people, not even for a high price, at a bargain price. The people are being taunted. People are laughing. God... It's not just the disaster, it's, it's the disgrace that now is falling upon God's people. What a description. What a description of the calamity that has fallen God's people. It's no wonder they're complaining. It's no wonder they're voicing a protest. And here's where it gets interesting. Beginning in verse 17, all this, all what he has just described has come upon us though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Now, if you go back and look at Psalms 38 and 39, it's pretty clear they are suffering because of what they've done. They are suffering because of their sin. So it shouldn't surprise us in one sense that that God's people, God makes it clear, blessings and curses and here's what it looks like to obey and here's what it looks like to disobey. It's not surprising that often you do see suffering because of sin. But here we're surprised Because they're saying that there's no sin. They are suffering, but they have been faithful to the covenant. They have kept their end of the covenant. Something else must be the cause of their suffering. One of the big challenges of our faith is to figure out why. Why things are happening. And and, and here is a... Faith facing the calamities of life without a sense of some kind of inward cause that merits the suffering. Think with me about the book of Job. We're benefiting from knowing the beginning and the end of Job, and Job had to learn it. God talks about Job being no more, there was no one more righteous than Job. And yet he suffered, and his friends came alongside him, and they were trying to do their best, and they were pointing out that. Job, it's got to be something that you've done. But we know how Job ends. It wasn't that, but yet even, even righteous Job had heard of God, but he hadn't seen him. And now he sees him and he repents in dust and ashes. We, we, do, we don't have that in here in the psalm, but what we do have is 
hey God, we've searched our hearts. We don't know why this is happening to us. This is a confession of innocence here, not sinless perfection, which no man can achieve, but, but they're searching their hearts. This confession of innocence matches their confession of faith earlier. There's a comprehensive claim of innocence, the inward reality of heart and mind and the outward reality of obedience. Now, we're going to speak just a moment about that as he, as he continues, but I think we've all heard of the prosperity gospel, right? Sadly, if you, you hear about Christianity expanding in Africa and there are true churches and true believers, but you also hear the, the prosperity gospel moving around the world where where it's this idea that if you do this, God will do that. You enter into an agreement. You give God this and he will bless you and give you that. It's a transactional uh, gospel. The prosperity gospel that God owes people an easy life, a good life, a comfortable life, a life of riches and wealth. And so if you give to God, he will give back to you. And sadly, many people we know are deceived by that And a text like Psalm 44 runs a sword through the prosperity gospel. It's got to be a difficult text for anyone who's inclined to believe the name it and claim it type of prosperity gospel. But look, this protest turns into an appeal to God's all-encompassing knowledge. Uh, Join with me as I pick up in verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. It's another mention here of not forgetting and not being false to the covenant. They're just saying it again in more words. God, you know us. You know the inward parts of our hearts and we have searched our hearts, God. And like Psalm 139, a prayer for God to search hearts. God, you know. And we can't find anything that would, that would lend to the condition we're in now. You know, when you believe in a great God, not a local deity, but the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who will redeem all things. When you believe in that God, you face hard questions, don't you? It's just another example that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We're, we're facing the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And now we come to verse 22, the key verse in Psalm 44, the one that Paul will quote in Romans 8. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, the psalmist could have said, yet we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, and he would be accurate. He would be um, saying what he is believing to be the case right now. But notice those words, yet for your sake. 
for your sake. It's, it's probably a reference to the fact that the reason for their suffering and its purposes are hidden in God rather than the idea that they are suffering for their fidelity to God. Step with me out and see the big picture. Uh, one commentator, Derek Kidner, says this about verse 22. Suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. If this is so, a reverse as well as a victory may be a sign of fellowship with him, not of alienation. A number of years ago, specifically um, December of 2012, uh, Grace and peace was in a difficult time. There just seemed to be a lot of opposition and discouragement. Um, things were seemingly follow, falling apart left and right. And, you know, of course, we have to examine ourselves. Lord, are we sinning? Are we doing something that does not please you? But someone uh, wise and been experienced in church planting for years uh, made an interesting comment. He said, Maybe what's going on is not a sign that God is not with you, that he's abandoned you, but maybe the actual opposite, that God is with you in the difficulty and he wants to be with you and he wants to persevere with you and see this church established. Wow, I was thankful for those words, those wise words, that big picture perspective. And that's what this commentator is saying and this may be a battle scar just the cost of doing business in a sinful and fallen world where you're loyal to the Lord rather than punishment. Notice that Paul quotes verse 22 not with the despair of we are more than defeated, but rather with the conviction and confidence that what? We are more than conquerors. Paul goes on from saying we're like sheep to be slaughtered to the fact that we're more than conquerors. The psalmist has moved from a glorious past to a tragic present. He's looked back and he's looked around and now he looks ahead. The people look ahead to a future salvation. He, he moves from trust at the beginning to rejection in the middle and now to an appeal. Let's listen as we read verses 23 through the end. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Here is the future salvation through the unfailing love of God. It's a prayer for deliverance. Now, here we get to a conventional standard prayer. Um, it's petition, but I believe there are four distinguishing characteristics. Notice, first of all, it's a passionate prayer for urgent help. And the ground for the appeal is he's recalled the past mercies of God. He's described the present distress that everyone is in. And he claims that he and God's people have been loyal to the covenant. 
It's a passionate prayer for urgent help. It's an honest prayer. It's an honest prayer. Um, What do y'all make of the fact that when you're in a conversation with someone and they say, to be honest, do you ever stop and say, well, what have you been saying until then? Uh, To be honest, the psalmist is really honest. He is not afraid to question God. He's secure enough in his relationship, even though God feels distant and feels absent. He's not afraid to question God. He's like, God, I know that you don't sleep. I mean, is he quoting, uh, thinking about um, Psalm 121? uh, The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, but he feels like God is asleep. God seems to be asleep, but the appearance and not the reality of divine idleness and forgetfulness is what he's going to blow through with this request. It's a passionate prayer. It's an honest prayer. It's a bold prayer. Kids, did you see the exclamation points? You know, it's, it's, it's louder He is bold. John Newton says it so well. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. Look what the psalmist is asking. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us. Big request to a big God. It's passionate, it's honest, it's bold, and finally, it's confident. Notice the psalmist appeals to God's steadfast love for the sake of your steadfast love, for the sake of your covenant mercy, for the sake of your unfailing love. You see, the psalmist and and God's people know that God's love remains unchanged. He's asking him to rise up and help and redeem us, to redeem us. What does that mean? To pay the price, to provide out of your own resources, whatever is required to meet our need. So before we move on, let's ask ourselves, do we pray like this? Do we pray passionately, honestly, boldly, confidently? I mean, if... If calamity and disaster and disgrace leads to passionate, honest, bold, confident prayer, then all is not lost. All is not wasted. Do you pray like this? Can you pray like this? Can we pray like this? The final petition, where this psalm ends, rise up, help us, redeem us. As I was thinking about help, I was hearing in my mind 1965 lyrics. I need somebody, help, not just anybody, help, you know I need someone, help. 
Well, someone has come. Someone has been sent. You see, the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament leans forward to the Redeemer that has been promised, promised all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. The whole Old Testament leans forward to the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks of. The Redeemer has been sent. So Jesus is not only the object of this psalm. He's not only where this psalm is pointing. He is really the one and only one who can sing this psalm. Because if you look at verses 9 through 16, this agony of rejection that's been experienced and and the disgrace of this one representative believer. Look at verses 15 and 16. And think with me about Jesus. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, think of Calvary. Think of the one who really could say, what have I done? The only thing I've done is kept your law perfect. I've obeyed you in thought, in word, Indeed, Father, and yet you, as he prayed in Gethsemane, if there's another way that I don't have to go, let me take that road, and yet, but not my will, your will be done. He's the one that can sing this psalm in all integrity. And this psalm should help us see our Savior all the more for who he is and what he has done. You see, Peter says to the church, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. My friends, this is helping us to understand the amazing truth of the gospel, the great exchange That we give to Christ our sins and he gives us his righteousness. And as Jesus helps us sing this psalm with faith, with him, we express like we see in the first eight verses, our trust that the new heavens and the new earth will be our inheritance. God will give us that land. And with Jesus, we will voice our lament for our present suffering, our difficulty, our sickness, our discouragements. With Jesus, I mean, it's like he's the one who rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. That's our Savior. And with him, we cry our prayer with confidence for final rescue. Because even though Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew of God's steadfast love. He knew of God's unbreaking, unchangeable, always and forever love. My friends, in Jesus and in Jesus alone, he has redeemed us. For the sake of his steadfast love. Let's pray.
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed given us words to express our agony, our discouragement, our doubt, our lament, our complaint, our protest. And Father, we thank you that that doesn't turn you away, that you are committed to your people. Father, may a growing understanding and experience of your steadfast love that we have in Jesus more and more turn our protest into praise and our complaints into confessions of delight and joy in you. Father, we thank you that Psalm 44 is in the scriptures. Continue, Father, to feed us your word and strengthen us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the one